and welcome to episode 30 of the Loaded Card Podcast. Join Paul, Daniel, and their occasional guests as they talk about the things that they love and hate about gaming and the gaming industry. In this week's episode, we talk about scope creep and its effects on video game development. Hey, wouldn't it be cool if if we just added... Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome once again to the Loaded Card Podcast. Today's episode, um, hang on a second, I'm getting an email here. This might take a little bit longer. Today we're doing an episode on scope creep. I am Paul of What's Ball Playing Today, and with me as always is Dan, otherwise known as Trap the Viking. What's up, buddy? How you doing, man? How's it going? Mm, you know, I'm living, having some tea. It's a good day. That, that's good, because I'm living and having some beer. Also good. All right. I think so. It's been a short week and a half since we recorded last. Yeah, but it's been fun. What What have you been playing in that short week and a half? Oh, gosh. Uh, let's see. So, uh, for the most part, I've been playing Final Fantasy XV. I got got up to Chapter Nine in that. I've also been playing a little bit of Bloodborne and Rogue Legacy. Went back to that. Uh, also played Overwatch for a bit and Gauntlet, the remake of Gauntlet. Although they've they've changed it a lot since the original release, which was a nightmare to continue to play because it was so difficult. They changed it, dumbed down the difficulty, changed a lot of the overworld stuff like you you don't have an overworld anymore you don't have an outer world you have a map and that's it kind of okay. blows i mean it's, it's not bad it's just not i don't like the changes too much yeah well that's what good. about you i have basically been playing one game well i started uh our next game quarter game which is call of war it's gunslinger gunslinger uh, i'm I excited about the first chapter of it so far it's it's pretty good i really like the kind of like little foil for it where mm-hmm. it's you know like dude in a bar telling tall tales basically it's and great like, isn't it it's a great setup and you can basically do anything the fuck you want because it's a dude telling stories so he can lie his fucking ass off if he wants to yep, yep. and they definitely play on that trope which is really cool so um, I'm, I'm very curious to see how the rest of it goes so i mean it's I, pretty good so far gameplay is pretty smooth it's been a absurdly long time since i've played a twitchy first person shooter mm-hmm. and i that struck me when i was playing the first one i was like i'm not sure i know how to do this because the last first person <laughs> shooter i played was spec ops the line which is a <laughs> tactical shooter which is what i'm used to playing and this is kind of a, a little more run and gun like i don't mm-hmm. know i feel like you get rewarded a little more for not just hiding behind stuff and shooting like you just yeah. get out there and blast things away but i don't know well, well it has a combo meter but we'll we'll get into a lot of specifics but it does have a combo meter you do get rewarded for being aggressive in your play yeah but i mean it's just i i've have no conceptions at all going into this game and it's been kind of interesting but other than that i have been playing a significant amount of elite dangerous because holy shit that game is really still very good I really need to get back into it. I, I have I have honestly been like I really gotta play this and then I turn around and I look at the the flight stick sitting in the box and I'm like oh, do I really want to do this now? Like I, I started messing with a thing that I've found about uh rare commodities trading, which used to be a really, really good way to make money because you just go mm-hmm. buy rare stuff. And I mean like you stop at a spaceport and you buy like 18 units of this thing for like a hundred or 200 credits a unit. So, sure. so you buy like a ton of 
tea at the station that you know specializes in tea and you're paying 150 credits for a ton of tea and then you go like 150 light years away from there and you sell the tea for like 15,000 credits a ton and so you basically go in and you you spend like you do like these weird little loops where you stop at like a couple of stations that are really close to each other that have rare commodities and mm -hmm. you buy like $10,000 worth of stuff. Yep. And then you, you fly like 150 light years to this next string of like four or five really close together stations. And you sell all of the ones from the first set for, you know, you make like, 600 800,000 credits and then you spend another 10,000 credits to buy rare stuff from this these four or five stations in a row and then you fly back to the first set of stations and you sell again for like 800,000 credits yeah that's ridiculous so you, you make a huge amount of profit it just takes time depending on the jump range of your ship uh, which mine is abysm abysmally small, but I'm well, working, working on that. So, I mean, let's be honest here. You probably have like a type seven or something like that, which yeah, is a, a type six. I, I took a huge freighter. Yeah. Um, but one of the things I'm looking to get into, which is kind of interesting that they have in the game now is uh, passenger missions where you like mm -hmm. smuggle people or, or just take people like, Hey, I'm really rich and I want to buy space in one of your VIP cabins. And I want to go see this nebula and you take people there and you so you get to like see cool stuff in the game and work on reputations with uh people's like the groups that these people are affiliated with and like see cool stuff and so it's like i don't know awesome it's a, it, it just and make money and you know and 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 so it's it's just something I'm i'm interested in checking out because it's not something i've done i've not done the trading thing which is kind of why i'm messing with this and i've definitely not done passenger missions because they're really new to the game what i'm most excited for however is i think in the next couple of updates they're going to introduce the full crew ships yeah that's really exciting that actually goes into beta in a couple of weeks it hits the beta servers that's they awesome actually, as as of the day of recording they being frontier the people who make uh, really dangerous. dangerous they did a live stream today showing off the new thing that's going to beta like this most recent update the 2.3 i think is the uh, official name or the official update for it right. and they showed off the character creation in 2.3 so like you actually get to design your person and the way they look and they're going to add some like new camera features to let you take pictures inside of your ships because part of the 2.3 update is crew style ships. So mm -hmm. having multiple people in the same ship and the three roles involved there so far are kind of interesting. So it'll be, it'll be kind of neat, especially the fighter will be the most interesting one for, for a lot of people because they actually get to like jump into the equivalent of like an X wing and just zoom around and shoot things. And I'm excited. Yeah, it should be it should be really fun. While you know the other person's in a giant capital ship and blasting the crap out of things, so I don't know. It's I I'm really excited for it. it it's me too. Uh, so cool, and I'm tempted to do it for a game corner at some point in time. But like I don't know. It's we could focus just on that one update just for the game corner, yeah. not necessarily the whole freaking game. Yeah, there's there's so much to that game. I don't know if it if it would work very well with our format. 
but I would happily play like 60 hours of it for Game Corner. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We've played longer. Kind of. We haven't really played longer, but Not damn, it felt like it. Yeah. Fuck that game. Anyway. All right. So, we have some uh, news. We do have some news. Um, so, I actually thought, think, can think of something new. Um, we were talking a little bit before the show about what we might have for news. Uh, but so, Nintendo recently. They did this little, you know, mini NES classic console, mm-hmm. right? That had like these little NES retro controllers and yep. they're impossible to fucking find because everyone buys yep. them and sells them on eBay for three times the price and shit like that. Thanks, Nintendo, uh, for falsely creating, creating scarcity. So it's not necessarily false because pretty much everywhere other than North America, they are stopping production of the little nintendo classic mini why i don't know like they just it's not going to be available in europe anymore it's not going to be basically the only place that's still going to make it and sell it is going to be north america that is unbelievably silly Meh. i have no <sighs> idea it's i don't know it, it yeah it does sound really dumb but it's like yeah. one of those things where it's like they have had such a hard time getting like keeping it in stock that like they're just going to stop making it instead, which seems really stupid to me. But... You could make a mint yeah. just continuing to make more. People want them. Like, I saw one. Yes. I actually saw one at Walmart. Or mm-hmm. no, I don't think it was Walmart. I think it might have been Target the other day. Uh, I mean, like, within the last week. And I was debating on buying one just to potentially resell it or I don't know because there's not a whole lot of games on it that I really want, but I was sure you know, there was the eh, maybe, but as, as soon as I even thought about it, some guy walked over with a uh, employee and was like, I want that. <laughs> and I was like, yep, that's how it goes. Cause yep. he was like on the phone when I walked over there and he was walking yeah. off on the phone. And then he immediately, as soon as I walked over and was looking at it, like came over with an employee. It was like, yeah, I'm going to buy this. And he was buying it for a friend who really wanted it, which <laughs> Which is kind of cool, but yeah, you know. we have one other bit of news. Yes, and it is pretty freaking sweet because, as we all know, I'm a pretty big fan of the game. Blizzard's Overwatch just broke uh, 25 million players uh, back in January on the 30th, and it is currently Blizzard's f- really just its fastest growing game. And now, with that 25 million registered players, it is not only incredibly impressive at how many players this has. But also the rate of growth in such a short time, it's been exponential with Overwatch growing 25% in just three months across PC and consoles. Three yeah. months, it's grown 25%. That is insane. Yeah, it's a, kind of a really good tribute to like Blizzard made a really good game. They, they did. nailed everything. Like everyone loves the game. I have never, mm-hmm. I have yet to hear anyone play the game and just kind of go, meh. Like, I'm pretty sure there are people out there, but no one I know just played the game and was like, yeah, whatever. Like, it was it was fun for a couple minutes, but like, I, I mean, like, everyone plays the shit out of it, like, all the time. It's really, really funny. My buddy Dan uh, originally had said, I was like, I can't get into this. And then I, whenever I check Battle.net, it's pretty much whenever he's home, he's either on Overwatch or playing FIFA. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the thing is, like, people people love the game and they keep playing it. Even people it's that, like... sneaky normally don't play first person shooters love it or people yeah. that love first person shooters are playing the shit out of it like this is it, what they wanted forever like an arena style fast paced over the top first person shooter and it's blizzard of all people who delivered it so it's like 
I don't know. Yeah. It's, but it's a crazy it's, world, but it's they they did it right and more power to them like yeah, Matt props. That's, that's the thing though it's really sneaky it sneaks up on you like you don't realize that you're gonna enjoy this you're like ah, oh, you know i'll just give it a try not a huge deal and all of a sudden it's uh, it's 3 a.m the cat's meowing at you to feed it and you're still playing reaper or whatever it's <laughs> it's ridiculous how how addictive this game is you have to force yourself to stop playing it and go to bed yeah but that's that's definitely the sign of a good game and good design and it's really weird because i almost kind of wonder what project titan would have been like which was you know the mmo that they were going to make that overwatch came from and it's one of those things where it's like if that's the project that would have been and like they scrapped it and turned out this hunk of solid gold like Mm -hmm. i i just i really wonder what project titan would have been like i i i'm curious like if they had made an MMO with these characters, would it have been as good? Like, who knows? I don't know. But I kind of would love to see Blizzard do a superhero MMO. That would have been really kind of fucking awesome. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I do like is the fact that this is the first new intellectual property that Blizzard has put out since the Lost Vikings. Yeah. It's as crazy as that is, yes. It like, sounds insane, but Warcraft was before the Lost Vikings, and so is StarCraft. Yeah. It's just... Wait. Because you, you pause for a second, and you're like, that doesn't make any sense, because what about StarCraft in the world? I mean, World of Warcraft is out, so was Diablo. Nope. All of them were before Lost Vikings. Well, World of Warcraft wasn't before Lost Vikings. However, no, but Warcraft World of was. Warcraft is an extension of Warcraft, yes. so it is that IP. Yeah. But yeah, it is, it is very weird, and shows that if you do it right you can you can nail it absolutely and polish 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 because that is apparently the key to overwatch everything is super super polished and mm-hmm. and they and they continue to tweak and they continue to, to monkey around with things they create new metas for for characters every freak it seems like every other month they they, they get a new meta in it's crazy yep yep, yep. that's a, a sign of a good game that is constantly being balanced and having new stuff added to it the meta changes constantly mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's actually one of the biggest complaints in some ways about uh, professional League of Legends is that like literally sometimes there are only like a very, very small handful of champions that are even remotely viable in the meta. So like you will literally sometimes go months where like in the support role, you'll have three champions being played. Like last year, it it was literally always thresh nami and brahm like those were the three support characters that got played Hmm. and like and this year it's blown up a bit because there's been a lot of changes to the game and there's changes to the way picks and bands work now so but again there's still like jungle is the one that i see the most of right now where in in this season so far the junglers have basically been ringar uh and graves and then very very rarely when more than one of those gets banned out you'll start seeing rexai or elise which are like those are the top five junglers in the game like Mm -hmm. period and then there's a new one warwick or he just got a big remake so he just got played for the first time this past week because they just got to the patch where he got remade so yeah there's there's basically six and it's just those six and almost no one is going to stray outside of those six unless they all get banned out for for context for people who don't play league of legends me how big is the roster uh 
fucking shit. I don't know. There's a it, it's huge. If it's huge, okay, then that's that's all I need. If you if you're playing six heroes out of a hundred, well, ugh. not every hero is suitable for every role. Of course, I mean that's that's just like Overwatch. You divide them into in in fact, in Overwatch you divide them into four categories: attack, defense, tank, support. That's it. Yeah. League of Legends has a few more than that, which is really weird because that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. I mean, th- those are the those are honestly, Overwatch kept it simple and did it very well. Yeah the the way League of Legends works, there are marksmen, mages, assassins, tanks, mm-hmm. fighters, and support, and mm-hmm. they can overlap. Yeah, like someone can like a tank can be played as a support. It just like basically they just soak up lots of damage but there are 134 champions in league of legends that is the current total that is pure insanity yeah yeah all right do we want to just turn this into league slash overwatch cast no because we're because we're experiencing scope creep right now yes a little bit (laughs) man i could i could talk about lcs for a while though i i could i could talk (laughs) about i could talk about overwatch for days i really could however we do have some questions indeed indeed so the first question is from Drew Rowland, one of our awesome Patreon backers and co-host of Hops and Heroes, a also really great podcast. And yes. he wants to know who is our favorite Mario brother. I couldn't be more indifferent. Really? Yeah. Why is that? I, I'm not a huge Nintendo guy. I I don't care. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, like it's really a choice between two. Unless for some weird reason he's counting Wario, I don't think Wario is a brother though. Like I don't, I don't. He's not. Either. Yeah, I, I don't know the canon. Of, Neither uh, is Wario. Waluigi. Yeah, uh, mine is actually very simple. Mine is Luigi because Luigi mm-hmm. is awesome, and fucking the poke of doom in Smash Brothers is one of my favorite moves in the history of Smash Brothers. I'm fine with saying Luigi. Fun fact: Waluigi isn't even related to Wario either. He's just some guy who showed up one day to play tennis. That's literally his canon. <laughs> That's actually really fucking awesome. <laughs> He's just some dude who showed the fuck up and started playing yeah. tennis with people. Yeah, like, I don't know. Just There's playing Smash Brothers Brawl for hours and hours and hours in the dorm. I got really, really good with Luigi. He was probably one of the three or four characters I used all the time. But mm-hmm. he has a side smash where he just, like, literally does this with his hand. Like, just... Yeah. And, like... If he hits someone with it, like they are almost gone. Like it is almost like one of the biggest smashes in the game, which is really crazy. But you just launch people off the side of the screen, and it is kind of that's. And he just like kind of pokes his hand out and just yeah. jabs them with it. And that's and why I call it the poke of doom. Yeah, yeah. And oh, so good, so much fun. I miss I miss brawl. I miss having a bunch of friends that want to play Smash Brothers brawl. I understand. Or Smash Brothers anything, because. None of them live here. None of my friends who like to play Smash Brothers. I don't really enjoy the games either. I'm sorry. It's a lot more fun if you have a lot of people just sitting around and playing. So That's fair. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I like Brawlhalla, which we've mentioned before, is mm-hmm. that it is kind of a online Smash Brothers game. So I don't know. Fair enough. So we also have one more question, which is also from Drew. Uh, and it kind of leads into our main topic here. So he asked, do you think Shroud of the Avatar will be officially released this year? Maybe leading to no. 
mostly because all we've seen of it is some excellent release candidates, but that's it. We've only seen the multiplayer aspect of the game. We haven't seen anything regarding the story. We haven't seen anything regarding pretty much anything of behind the scenes development regarding just anything storyline related, which is supposed to be what a 40 or 80 hour campaign. I believe we yeah. talked about uh, 40 hours. So yeah, we were talking about this a little bit before the show and I haven't actually been paying attention to the backer updates, but so much. And we, Paul and I are both backers of this game, mm-hmm. but it's supposed to have a 40 plus hour single player campaign that can be played online if you want, but it can be played completely offline single player. What they've been doing is I think they've been doing most of the story work behind closed doors. Like none of that has been kind of visible Um, I'm pretty sure they've been doing updates periodically and they've been adding areas to the game as they add those areas that are necessary for the storyline and whatever. Doesn't Um, surprise me. But the the releases that they keep doing, which, I mean, they're up to a ridiculous amount now. Like, I don't even remember the last release, um, the actual number, but they... The, all the releases that they do are just the multiplayer component of the game, just the MMO component of the game. Yeah. Um, the last one was 214. Well, yes, but what was the release of the actual system? Because the last one I remember was, I think, R33 or R34, and I don't 39. Uh, so the 39 will be the next one, so this was the last release candidate was 38. But that is a ton yeah, of so that's, content. And, and those are their betas. Like, So yes. that's their, the 38th version of the beta is out so basically if you probably put a version number on it it's like 0.38 or whatever Mm -hmm. Uh, but they update it almost weekly Um, yeah like i've got uh, a shit ton of email (laughs) yeah it is it is actually weekly because i've got february 10th february 3rd january 27th january 25th in fact for release candidate 38 then it goes back to january 20th 13th, 6th, it is every week that they are updating us, at the very least, not necessarily with release candidates, but just updates surrounding what they've been doing lately. Yeah, so my answer to this question is possibly, like, I don't know, but I, if it doesn't come out this year, I think the single-player campaign will probably come out next year. Like, the the thing about this game is, like, they were very, very ambitious with it, but they have been super awesome about talking to their fans, talking to their backers, yes. telling people what they're doing, showing people what they're doing. They are constantly making progress. I have for a long time been saying that we need to jump back in and just see, just take a look. Yeah. We may hate it, but just see what, what is going on. Cause I haven't like, I haven't played since I early like probably before R20. So like, I, I want to say it was R16 or R17 was the last time I downloaded one and looked at it. And they're on 38 now. So it's been a good long time. They've, they've made a chunk. So, but that's like the same thing with any kind of beta that you get involved in. You you take a look at it, you wait a little while, you take a look at it again. If you don't like it, mm-hmm. you wait a little while, you take a look at it again. Um, so I just need to take a look at it again sometime. But yeah, so I think... If it doesn't come out this year, if the main actual campaign part doesn't come out this year and it doesn't hit like exit its early access or whatever it is currently considered to be in, I think you'll probably see it exit next year. I mean, they they had a big thing at Dragon Con last year, so they'll probably have another big thing at Dragon Con this year. Yep. Because Richard Garriott was at Dragon Con. Like he was there. So this has been held a big panel. Yeah, this has been in development. The first one that I have, project update number one. 
March 9th, 2013. Yep. I think that was the last time I played it was somewhere around then. Like, I haven't touched it in way too long. But when it comes to scope creep, like, I don't know how much of that is scope creep because I don't think they've added stuff since the game started its development. But... Even if they have, they've handled it so well. Yeah, they they do a good job communicating and have done a good job showing what they're working on, which is one of the big problems of scope creep is that most of the time you never see it. Like you never know. Yeah. But one of the big indicators of scope creep is what has unfortunately recently befallen South Park, the fractured butthole. Yeah. Where it was delayed again. Yep. So... This is like the third or fourth time it's been delayed. And now instead of giving a firm window of anything, yeah. like so it, it didn't get pushed back to like May or second quarter. It got pushed back to 2017 to 2018. Yes. So and and that may or may not be involved scope creep. That may just be they they needed some major rewrites. They something happened. Like something happened to that game. And they had to massively push it back because it wasn't yeah. what probably should have been a couple months of cleaning up. Like they originally said, they were going to, you know, polish the game a little bit and get it ready for release. And they needed a couple extra months has now turned into it might take two years. So there's a larger problem at work there. And that's normally the effect of scope creep. And basically, Paul, do you want to give a definition of scope creep or feature creep like so that people kind of know the basis we're going from before we start giving examples so so one actually one of the one of the most fun things I, i've done today is a friend of mine had no idea what scope creep was and she's a barista at starbucks the way i worked it uh, the way i defined it for her was um so think of someone making a latte they order a latte it's very simple beverage but what happens when th- that's th- so the ability to make the beverage from start to finish is the scope of the beverage. If someone comes in and says, but I want two pumps of this, one pump of that, I want whipped cream on that, and I also want a, a, a second beverage, that is scope creep because you're increasing the scope of how long it's going to take you to make their order. Right. That is scope creep and feature creep. If someone comes along and adds in more stuff, someone comes along and wants changes to their order or changes to the game, that is scope creep. And sometimes it comes from the actual developer. Like sometimes... Or sometimes it's the publisher that looks at the game and goes, can you try doing this? Like Mm -hmm. one of the most infamous kind of forms of scope creep that happened many, many years ago, probably the early 2000s was plagued by this was, can you make it a little more like Grand Theft Auto? Oh, God. Yeah. (laughs) Like it was was almost a joke in the video game industry for a while where like all publishers wanted was another Grand Theft Auto. So like literally you'd be pitching a game and they would like some suit would literally ask you like how you could make it more like Grand Theft Auto because that was selling like hotcakes. So that's what they wanted. They wanted more of. But sometimes it can be the developer. Sometimes the developer gets hit by the good idea fairy and they like, oh, man. This is what we really wanted to do, but this would be so much cooler. So let's add all of this stuff to the game so that we can do this other really, really cool thing. And then it takes an extra six months to add that really cool thing to the game and the game gets pushed back and delayed. Yeah. Uh, for example, Driver was one of those that was just like, hey, we need a Grand Theft Auto. We need a Grand Theft Auto killer. 
and the continued shifting and shifting. And then there was all those issues with driver. <laughs> yeah. And Saints Row was the same thing. Like it was an attempt to to make a Grand Theft Auto game, which eventually like outgrew it. it well, eventually it didn't outgrow it. Eventually it like became, I guess, a little more self-realized. It it became Evil Dead 2 and then Army of Darkness. So like in my opinion. I think probably Saints Row 2 is the equivalent of the Evil Dead 2 where it became kind of aware of itself and made parodies. Like it just kind of made fun of the fact that it was a GTA clone. Mm -hmm. And then 3 started the Army of Darkness part where it just kind of goes, (laughs) it it, it takes that self-awareness and goes way over the top. Yeah, 3 destroyed any parallel you could have with Grand Theft Auto. And then then 4 is, again, a continuation of the just completely making fun of the fact that they were a GTA clone, and they know it. If I can use a giant double-headed dildo sword to beat the shit out of somebody... In my game, you are no longer a parallel to Grand Theft Auto. You've gone so far beyond it that you are your own genre. And the the dubstep gun, the infamous dubstep gun, yeah, where you like can make people shit their pants and dance and yeah. all kinds of other funny stuff. Another another kind of idea of like scope creep would be like to use your barista example because it's it's actually a pretty good one and it's really easy to work with. So like, say you order your latte. Mm-hmm. And like halfway through making the latte, you go, oh, hey, can I get a, a, a couple shots of chocolate syrup in it? And yep. they go, oh, okay. And they have to stop whatever they're doing and go out of their way to give you these couple shots of chocolate and then go back and make it. And then if they keep going, you're like, oh, oh, actually, can I get a shot of espresso too? And I mean, I know these things are going to change the price of your drink. or whatever, Of course. But, yes. But. Again, that's the same parallel. You're going to need more money to to make these changes. So not only will it uh, change the price of your order, you'll also piss off everybody behind that counter. <laughs> yes, but and then it's like, you know, they get to, they finish with your drink, and you're like, oh, can I have a cookie too? Like, I mean, like th- that is it's a very good representation of scope creep. Absolutely. Um, Plus, it's also a great representation of the mentality behind their development staff, because yes. I guarantee you're going to have pissed off developers if you're going to continue to have scope yeah. creep. Well, sometimes, sometimes if it if it is all developer side scope creep, like they could be really really excited about it because it is something new, something different. Like they want to add this new feature to the game, so they get really really passionate about it. Which I think there's two games on this list that that do this. Well, I think I know the one you're going to go with. So, so the first game I want to talk about is a very, very classic example of scope creep that turned out really successful despite itself, which is kind of funny. And that is the very, very first Elder Scrolls game by Bethesda mm-hmm. called Arena. So originally, if you don't know the story behind Arena, which Bethesda loves to talk about this game, which is kind of funny. There's tons of stuff out there to, to, to read about the development of this game because literally... It is their Final Fantasy. Like, if this game did not take off and do well, there would be no Bethesda software today. Like, Bethesda Bethesda Softworks would not exist if it were not, if Arena did not work. So, originally, their idea was they were going to make a medieval-style gladiator game. You were going to be in charge of a arena team that went around from town to town fighting in gladiatorial arenas, and you would have your team of fighters and they would have their team of fighters 
and you would fight in the arena in these gladiator matches and you would win and go town to town until you became the grand champion fighting in the imperial city like in front of everyone and the emperor or whatever and you were gonna you were gonna you know fight your way up this ladder and be the arena champion which sounds like a pretty cool game like that could yeah. be really awesome like i've actually thought very along those same lines of like it'd be really fun to make a little mobile game like that and just have like a little tactical arena combat game like that would be kind of cool there was a great game on playstation 2 called gladius that did, that was the yeah. exact same concept yeah so here's where the scope creep starts <laughs> so they're working on this game and they start thinking hey wouldn't it be cool if we added some like little side quests that you can do in the cities that you stop in so like when you go from city one to city two and when you get to city two you can do like some little side quests to make some money and like do a little bit of role playing and you know just just little stuff like that right mm -hmm. so yeah yeah this is really cool the whole team is on board we love this idea let's start developing all of these cities so they start working on the cities and not just the arenas they're going to be fighting in but the actual cities and the people in it and little side quests mm -hmm. and then they start going like well hey hey wait wait a minute what if these side quests start taking you into like dungeons outside of the cities and like caves and like all of this cool stuff they can be like just outside the city. So you go to the city to fight in the arena, you start doing these side quests. And then like you go into these dungeons and you can hack your way through dungeons and level your dudes up. And then you'll be better in the arena. And they all said, that sounds fucking awesome. So they started working on all of these dungeons and stuff surrounding all of these cities. And then eventually they reached this really, really weird point where they had put so much work into all of the side quests and all of these cities and all of these dungeons and all of the role-playing stuff that they took a look at their original Gladiator Arena game and said, I don't think this really fits. No. So they literally took that idea and threw it in the trash can. At that point, they've got, they've, they'd gone so far beyond it that it just made sense. Yeah, like they actually, according to Bethesda, had never even coded any of the arena system. Like all of their work had been on all of the side quests and the cities and all of this stuff. And none of it was in the game. Like they had never actually worked on any of the arena system. I'm somehow not surprised. Which is kind of crazy to think about, but... A bit. So... At that point, they're they're looking at their game and they're they're going along with this kind of new game that they're trying to figure out. Like, how do we have this all of these areas and just all of these random side quests? What are we gonna do with this? And they kind of took a look at the idea of like, well, you have this party running around, right? And that's kind of the classic D D dungeon crawler staple, is you have this whole party of people, mm -hmm. but it's not not that fun. Like it's just something is off. So they scrap the entire party system from the game and make it a first-person, single-player game. You are the champion. You are the hero. You run around and do all of these side quests and explore these cities and these dungeons and all this stuff. And now it is no longer a party-based game. It is just a single-player, 
you are the champion game. And then there's actually some kind of funny stuff. Like apparently there are file, like just in the game, there are still text files or whatever that include all of the arena names for the different teams in each city. Like, so each major city had its own arena team and they Mm -hmm. actually had names for the teams, but that like, that's kind of the only little shred of evidence that's still left in the game code of these systems is just team names. They came up with team names, which is kind of funny. I would actually kind of, I haven't done this yet, but I'm going to try and look it up and see if I can find them. But I would love to know some of the team names because they, I bet they're fucking hilarious. I'm, I'm thinking about looking them up. <laughs> All right. Not yet. Well, I, we'll see if we can find them. Or we'll put them in the show notes. So then the game development got really weird because so they had this, this idea and they were working on it and they were going to make this big open world RPG with all of these weird side quests and all of this stuff going on. And so the weird part that happened was they did all, a lot of these decisions happened so late in the development cycle that literally all of the game's box art and advertising and everything reflected the original gladiator arena combat game concept and it hurt sales like people didn't had no interest in the game looking at the box art like it 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 was a bad a bad thing it was just bad branding it just didn't look good um the kind of amusing story is the member of the development staff that came up with the elder scrolls thing at the beginning like just thought it sounded cool Mm -hmm. like he didn't have any lore reason to do it like they that the the lore that they've added since then about what the elder scrolls actually are didn't exist they just thought it sounded cool to call it elder scrolls yeah makes sense and and it stuck which is generally the way these things work hey this sounds really awesome and like people do it thankfully for all of us all of us gamers who who love the elder scrolls games like as a handful of people played it they they started talking about how good the game was and other people played it and other people played it and other people played it like the game actually sold really well and they made elder scrolls 2 daggerfall and every everything turned out with a happy ending like but but it is a great example of scope creep because they started with this one idea and they added a little bit more to it and added a little bit more to it and added a little bit more to it and it kept blowing up and blowing up and blowing up and then like originally they just scrapped the entire original idea which is hilarious like yeah basically elder scrolls arena and the entire elder scrolls franchise comes from all of the scope creep from the original arena game that doesn't have any of the original arena game in it so it is literally a game of scope creep which is awesome i I think is hilarious but i do too all All right right. the next one is a horrible horrible representation of scope creep and i could extol the entire rest of the podcast on this game alone we all know about it and just by that description alone i bet you could guess it is the pervert with a gun himself duke nukem and his game of duke Nukem forever from 1996 to 2011 duke nukem forever was in development not necessarily all all the time in active development but it was in development from that time period so the first official announcement was in april of 1997 they intended to release the game no later than mid 1998 so the game's graphics the game's engine for duke nukem 3d they were dated i mean 
it, it looked pretty cool at the time, but it's clear that it needed to be updated and look better because it was still using sprites as opposed to actual models. And at that point, they end up saying, hey, its software's Quake 2 engine looks pretty cool, right? So we can license that. And at the time, George Broussard and company were completely flush with cash because Duke Nukem had sold tons and tons of money. 3D Realms was was king of the king of the castle at the time. So what they did was they said, hey, we're going to bankroll this. We're just going to say hell with it. We're going to fund the whole damn thing. And why don't we turn over marketing stuff to GT Interactive? That's fine. We can turn over marketing publishing rights to GT Interactive. So in August and September of that year, they a lot of screenshots were released for Duke Nukem Forever. And the problem was that they didn't receive the Quake Engine code until November 97. So the screenshots were mock-ups, which as we all know, people love to do. And yeah. by the time 1998 came around, E3, hey, awesome. They saw Unreal Engine, which was debuted in at E3 of 1998. They're like, oh, this is super cool. So that's six months of code that they had gotten between E3 and the original date, scrapped. They went with we went with Unreal Engine, and Bursar was like, mm, you know, okay, because they had they were having trouble trying to render Nevada, like the actual Nevada desert, inside of the Quake Two engines. They're like, okay, Unreal looks really cool. We should do that. Yeah. Uh, uh, for those of you that don't know, historically, um. The Quake engine is really, really good, especially early versions of the Quake engine. So Quake, yeah. Quake 1 and Quake 2 are really, really good at indoor environments. Absolutely. The Unreal game, like the Unreal engine... Amazing uh, was, in outdoor environments. ...was notoriously good for really, really big open environments. And that's yeah. why that kind of is what separated the choice of those engines between most games was... If you needed giant open spaces, you use the Unreal Engine. If you if could you had, get away with, yeah. you know, enclosed spaces and in buildings and stuff like that, you mm -hmm. generally use the Quake Engine because it was more optimized and faster. And and, and it was also they, they were both quite pretty. They, they were comparable in graphics, so it, it was kind of a push. So if you needed those specific situations, you choose one or the other. In this case, you're like we're having trouble with Nevada. Let's just go with the Unreal Engine because it looks really cool and it's like really shiny and new. And by the end of 1999, Duke Nukem Forever had missed several release dates, was largely unfinished. Half of the game's weapons remained concept art. There was so much crit criticism. George Broussard, bless his soul, the guy's really cool online. I really enjoy interacting with him on Twitter, so I hate dishing through this, but he fires back at people taking shots saying that there's lengthy development time, the price paid for developing complex modern games, saying that's what Broussard says, this is the price paid. You want a complex modern game, this is what you're going to get. It's going to take a while. Calm down. Yeah. So the biggest issue was that George was continually looking to add new elements to the game. Basically, running Joker 3D Realms was that they, you got to stop George from seeing the new video game. Because he's going to want to put in that stuff in the new game. Yeah. Grand Theft Auto. Wasn't there a, a joke at one point that they were going to put RTS elements in the in the game? Like, I mean, it was it was that bad. I I don't remember much of that I, joke, I, but it doesn't remember, surprise me. I remember hearing rumors that there were going to be RTS elements in Duke Nukem Forever, and it was just like, <laughs> what the hell are they even doing at this point? After seeing the sheer magnitude of stuff, and I'm not even through the first 
you know third of its lifespan mm-hmm. it wouldn't surprise me one bit yeah so long story short they finally in 2001 created another e3 trailer for fans saying hey take a look at this this is really cool it's the first look you've had in three years video showed actual minutes of in-game footage real in-game footage which doesn't happen at e3 at all player moved around in las vegas it was all kinds of fun everybody was really excited and then they realized they kind of had to stop because um I, I don't want to joke about this. And there was a, a death of one of the Gathering Developers co-founders and continuing financial problems. They kind of ended up uh, shuttering the Texas-based offices and they were absorbed into their parent company, Take-Two Interactive. So there's a lot of conflict between 2003 and 2006 with Take-Two Interactive. To <sighs> One former employee said that George Broussard was in, and, and Miller were both in a 1995 mentality. Before games became a large team, big budget development affairs, there was they were still in that small team mentality. Because they were financing the project themselves, the developers could also really ignore any pressure from their publisher. Their standard reply to when Duke Nukem Forever would ship was when it's done, which it works for Blizzard. It didn't work too well for 3D Realms, unfortunately. He said that the company was writing off $5.5 million from its earnings due to Duke Nukem Forever's lengthy development time. This is to take to CEO Jeffrey Lappin. Broussard shot back that Take-Two needs to <clears throat> shut the fuck up. We don't want Take-Two saying stupid-ass things in the public for the sole purposes of helping their stock. It's our time and our money we're spending on the game. So we're either absolutely stupid and clueless, or we believe in what we're working on. So Lappin said 3D Grounds had told him that Duke Nukem Forever was expected to be finished by the end of 2004 or the beginning of 2005. In January 2016... Uh, <laughs> He said that many of Duke Nukem Forever's elements are finished. We're basically just putting it all together, trying to make it fun. By the time 2007 rolls around, unfortunately, George Broussard and Miller kind of had a schism, a falling out. Broussard appeared to become serious about shipping the title, and he posted two Gamasutra job ads with small screenshots of Duke Nukem and an enemy, which he later confirmed were real in-game screenshots. The team doubled in size within a short time frame, and among the new hires was Project Lead Brian Hook, who became the first person to successfully resist Broussard's request for changes. Yeah, unfortunately, Broussard was the one who behind all the scope creep. So 2007, a new in-game trailer was released, and then the game is nearing completion. Funding began drying up, as it always does. They spent more than $20 million of their own money. They asked Take-Two for $6 million to complete the game. According to Broussard Miller, Take-Two initially agreed, but then only offered $2.5 mil. Take-Two maintained that they offered $2.5 million up front. You know, he said, she said type thing. Finally, the, the Duke Nukem Forever team was laid off. 3D Realms was downsized in 2010. And by the time Gearbox came in, we really know the story from here. Duke Nukem Forever was finally released in 2011 to a collective meh from pretty much everybody. And, and when Gearbox took over, they said that, according to them at least, there was very little left to finish. Like it just needed it to was be very, finished. Yeah, the, what George had said was very true. They need a little bit more time and money to finish the game. Unfortunately, there wasn't much left to do and Take-Two was kind of at the end of the rope understandably so considering the situation gearbox picked it up finished it polished it off which was unfortunately polishing a turd set it out to sale and it was met with mediocre fanfare because a 15-year game you expect miracles and got borderline garbage so 
this is kind of interesting because this actually straddles and leads into the next one I want to talk about really, really well, mm-hmm. because 2011 is right before Kickstarter happened. Yep. So the next game I want to talk about is what was originally referred to as the Double Fine Adventure game, mm-hmm. which is now known as Broken Age. And what makes this game particularly interesting is the fact that it has a giant professional documentary about it. You can actually go to the Double Fine YouTube channel and watch the entire Double Fine Adventure documentary, which is like at least 20 hours worth of stuff. Like it is a entire season of a television show worth of videos about the development of this game. We are going to include the link in the show notes. There For the full are, playlist. Yeah, there's a 60-something video playlist. It's more than 20 hours long. Like I have watched it. It is actually really good. It is really interesting. If you are at all curious about game development at all, mm-hmm. it is really awesome to watch. And Absolutely. It's, and it's also neat because you get to see these roadblocks as they hit them and the problems that they have because they have a shitload of them and how they overcome the problems and and like what happens. So this was the first big game that was done on Kickstarter. So if you don't know who Double Fine is, they are a small studio in California. Their most famous game is probably Psychonauts, Mm -hmm. which everyone loves. They've done a ton of other games, but Psychonauts was their big one. So Um, if you're not familiar with Double Fine, you're probably familiar with the name Tim Schafer. Yes. So the two big people at Double Fine are Tim Schafer and Ron Gilbert, who Mm -hmm. became, for for better or worse, like they made their name in adventure games. Like they worked for LucasArts Mm -hmm. and their list of credits at LucasArts is pretty impressive. It's, you know, Day of the Tentacle. I don't remember if they did Maniac Mansion or not, but they did Full Throttle. Tim Schafer did, there's so many games. It's hard to keep track of them all sometimes. It's kind of funny. He did, yeah. So Tim Schafer did Maniac Mansion, Secret of Monkey Island, Monkey Island 2, Day of the Tentacle, Full Throttle, uh, Star Wars Shadows of the Empire, which is kind of funny. Uh, (laughs) Grim Fandango, Psychonauts, like, so at Double Fine, Psychonauts, Brutal Legend, Costume Quest, Stacking, Iron Brigade, and it kind of goes on and on. Mm-hmm. Um, Once Upon a Monster. Yeah. Which is but, a Sesame Street little game. It's kind of funny. So the idea was Tim Schafer had worked with this company, Two Player Productions, when they were doing a documentary about Minecraft. And because like they wanted to do a documentary about game development like from start to finish a full game with a company and they were very familiar with double fine and tim schaefer and tim schaefer and ron gilbert had this dream that they wanted to make a one more adventure game Mm -hmm. and they knew that there was no way any publisher was going to touch an adventure game in 2012 when they launched this this kickstarter and it was true no, this think, was before any of the uh, the Telltale games. Telltale yes. wasn't the thing yet. Yeah. So Ron Gilbert, I think, said something along the lines of like, if if you had brought that up in a meeting with a publisher, like you know, you you wouldn't be able to leave bef- before they finished laughing at you. Like it just you might as well not do it. Like you just you just don't bother showing up. Publishers aren't even going to listen to you 
there's no point in doing this. So they wanted to do this. So the idea is they saw this thing on Kickstarter and they were like, here's what we're going to do. We want to make an adventure game. This is the only way we're ever going to be able to make an adventure game. You guys can film us making this adventure game. We'll make a, a good budget. So they they picked a budget basically around what was typical at the time for an iOS game. So a mobile game at the time, about $200,000 was considered a good budget, a, a kind of a median budget for a, a typical iOS game. Sure. So the goal for their Kickstarter was $400,000. So $300,000 for the game, $100,000 for the documentary that was being made. Sure. Sounds fantastic. Yeah. They made a million dollars in their first 24 hours. That seems reasonable. And they went, shit, what are we going to do with all of this money? They were, they had t-shirts and stuff they were offering. They had all of these physical goods. One of the very, very famous things that they did not account for was the fact that they paid something in the neighborhood of $200,000 of shipping. Yes. Literally, they paid the post office $200,000 to ship t-shirts and all of the crap that they shipped out as rewards. And that was stuff they didn't take into account, which is part of what led to all of the problems. Sure. Um, at the end of their campaign, they made $3.3 million. Delightful. Delightful. Which is nearly 400% of what they, they wanted, you know? Like, it's just a ridiculous amount of money for what they were looking for. Mm -hmm. So at the end, they they took a look at all this money and said, like, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take this extra money and we're going to use it to increase the production value on the game and the film that was being made. This was so early in the Kickstarter thing. Stretch goals didn't exist yet. Yeah. It didn't. People hadn't thought of them yet. I don't remember the first first game to really use stretch goals. It might actually have been Brian Fargo with Wastelands 2, but I don't remember. I'll see if I can figure find out, you know, who was the first one to do it. I I really, like I said, I don't remember. So the other thing they said they were going to do is they were going to port the game to multiple platforms. So not only Windows, they were going to do Mac and Linux and the major mobile platforms. So iOS and Android. Eventually they did Ouya, that, that failed console Ouya. Oh, good Lord. Yeah, they, they had exclusive console rights for Ouya, which is kind of funny. Like Ouya mm -hmm. paid them a ton of money to do exclusive console port. Then they, they also said they were going to do voice acting. So they did full English voice acting and then text localization to French, German, Italian, and Spanish, which mm -hmm. are the big languages you want to hit as an adventure game, uh, according to you know the way adventure games have always been. And they estimated at that time, based on the scope creep that they had at that time, that it would take about a year to develop. So instead of being released in October of 2012, they had pushed back the initial target date to the second quarter of 2013. So they they looked at it as professional developers and said, okay, there's a bigger scope to this game. We're going to do a little more. We need a little more time. They set their new target window and they went to work. They were actually one of the first, if not the first, to open up what they called a slacker backer. Mm-hmm where people who missed the initial Kickstarter funding could buy into the game so that you could go to Double Fine's website and pay them on PayPal and become a backer of the game. And you couldn't get any of the Kickstarter exclusive rewards, but you would get like beta access and whatever else. Sure, sure. Um, they also had the weird game split 
They kind yeah. of split so, the three realms of development. So while they're working on the game at this point in time, Tim Schafer was basically locking himself in his office and working on writing the game and coming up with the story and stuff. And while he's working on the story, the programmers didn't want to just sit there twiddling their thumbs. So they, they took the engine and that they decided they were going to use and started doing little mock-ups for basic systems of like moving around in the space and clicking on things and doing stuff. And they made a little weird game of like moving a robot around. Like that was just the picture they the people they decided they were going to use. And then the right. art team, because they were also waiting for Tim to finish, you know, working <laughs> on the actual story that they were going to do, started doing testing their art style. So they started doing little mock-up screenshots of the game and whatever art style that that they wanted to use for the game. So this this went on for a while because it took Tim Schafer a really long time to to work on this game. Uh, Understandably, and, and eventually they made what a lot of people are familiar with. They they made like a little demo video of a lumberjack walking around doing some stuff. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of if you've been if you follow the the Broken Age project at all, like that was a really iconic thing for a while. Was this lumberjack character, which I don't think actually appears in, in Broken Age at all, but he was you know just kind of there he was, he was part of their he's part of their test stuff like but it was the first like big test that the art team did with the programming team like they sure. came together and did this little test thing with the lumberjack dude right um, but in july of 2013 which if you are paying attention that's the second quarter of 2013 tim schaefer sat down took a hard look at the project and said there is no way they were going to finish this adventure game they the simple little adventure game they had started working on until sometime in 2015 yeah like that's yeah. how much that's how much scope creep had come into the game since they started working on it and like i said this is all documented in film which is you know one of the really cool things about this project you can go go watch it and it's really great um so a couple of things happened at this point for the first time in Double Fine's history. They had to hire outside help to finish the game. So a company called Super Genius was signed on to assist with art and animation. And then a very controversial thing, they, re they realized that they before 2015, they were going to run out of money. Yes. So they made the decision to split the game into two different parts, and they released what they called Act 1, and then... They were going to take the money they made selling Act 1 to fund the completion of Act 2. Yeah. And People were pissed. Yeah, it pissed a lot of people off. But Act 1 went into early access on Steam in January of 2014. Basically, people just saying they, they were being greedy and wanted more money. Mm -hmm. and it, Which I, it's an understandable reaction, I think. It definitely is, especially considering that how much money they got over their initial budget. It's like, look, dudes, you were making a three hundred thousand dollar game and you got three fucking million dollars. What the fuck? Like, yeah, yeah. So I don't know, but Tim Schafer through all of this maintained that they weren't just trying to get more money and that they were basically trying to make the game bigger than what they promised on Kickstarter, and this money was going to help them make this a bigger and better game. And by the end of January, the game was no longer in early access. So it was in early access for less than a month and was sure. a, a game fully available at retail. And 
part two was going to be a free update to the game when it was finished, quote, later in the year in 2014. So, okay. Yeah, that they pushed back. Yeah. The date. They they have they set another date. This is their goal again. So, yeah. in February of 2014, Tim Schafer confirmed that they had made enough money from the sales of Part One to complete Act Two. So, yay! Sweet. Act Two, Act Two has the money. It's a go. Awesome. So, in October of 2014, getting close to that end of the year, mm-hmm. Double Fine announced that. Both Act 2 and the game's finale were completely written by Tim Schafer, and they were working hard to finish up on the game. Awesome. And then a month later, they had to announce that they weren't going to be able to finish the game by 2014, so they were pushing it back to early 2015. Awesome. Which made a lot of people very, very angry and was widely regarded as a bad move. In part, but this is also a, a good little peek into scope creep. So they there were a lot of bits of feedback that they got from Act 1. And a a couple of the big ones that made its way into Act 2 and that caused them to stop and make changes to the game were, one, people said the puzzles were too simple because that's part of an adventure game is the puzzles. Right. And so they went back into Act 2 and redid all of the puzzles to make them harder. So there is a significant difference between the difficulty of puzzles in Act 1 and Act 2. And then this one's actually kind of amusing to me. So a fan theory started cropping up about the relationship of the two main characters in Act 1. So fans just were speculating about how they were related to one another. And Tim Schafer thought it was funny. Like, you know, he was amused by this fan theory. So he worked running jokes about the fan theory into Act 2's plotline. Sure, why not? <laughs> which is kind of funny. Like, nods to this fan theory yeah. are all through Act 2, which are kind of amusing. So, April 28th of 2015 is when the game finally finished. Neat. Yeah. I don't know what else to say. That that just kind of sucks. But at the same time, at least it got finished. Yeah, it's. but it is a, a great example and a very public example. Like Because you can go watch that documentary and see kind of what happened Mm -hmm. and it is this very weird thing yeah and it is but you can you can see the scope creep you can see like they talk very candidly about it and their frustration of like they want to make this cooler game and they want to do this cool stuff is very clear but they're running out of money and they're running out of time and they hate disappointing people and like it it really just pisses them off So it is a 62-video series, which ranges in time frame from five minutes to just over an hour. So each episode, they're generally around anywhere between 40 and 20 minutes. So in that time frame, you could probably chew up a video or two. The the initial video is a five-minute presentation of their pitch video. The next one is 20 minutes, followed by a 15-minute video. They, They have the episodes numbered. But there's also side quests, which are interviews with the, with the people around Double Fine. Yeah. Most of them are Tim Schafer. Yeah. Well, a lot of them are talking about the history of Tim Schafer. So, like, in 
one of them, like he literally just talks about Day of the Tentacle and mm-hmm. how Day of the Tentacle was made and stuff like that. And I think they do one for Full Throttle also and blah, 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 blah. Like he, it, it, they talk about some of the design challenges of those games, the history of mm-hmm. those games, like the environment in which in LucasArts where he made a lot of those games. And it was it was kind of a cool little thing. It's but pretty sweet. I, I really enjoyed watching them. I have not actually finished that whole series, uh, mostly because it's I was a long series kind of avoiding spoilers for the game because i sure actually still haven't played it but yeah the the documentary is fucking phenomenal i've watched probably 70 or 80 percent of it so i i highly recommend it yeah i'm interested i want to play the game first but i'm definitely interested in the the documentary series because what else would i want to know what that one million dollars is spent on yeah no kidding well (laughs) mostly like camera equipment and paying sure sure people this documentary for fucking three years. I, I joke, but most of that was just kind of how did the documentary turn out with that $1 million spent on it? Yeah. It, it, I thought it was really good. They did a lot of really cool stuff. So got my vote then. Okay. With broken age, we've got a, and clear scope creep that turned out. Okay. It's time to, I, I hesitate to say pick on, but it might turn into that. It's time to talk about one of our favorite uh, things to openly mock. Yeah, so we pick on this game a lot. We do. Um, but <laughs> because it's so easy and fun. Yes, yes. but we, we're not going to pick on it today. Like this, I don't think this is about picking on it. I mean, there might be a couple of jokes, but we're... You might not. Yes. Paul, I might not be able to help myself. Paul is probably going to. Our goal is not to pick on this game today. Our goal is to basically take a look at this because I think... It is a great, almost textbook example of how scope creep goes from you have a really cool game idea and you have something that you can work on to holy shit, there's a giant fucking mountain in front of us and I don't know if there's any way we can get up to the top of it. Yeah. And this game is Star Citizen. Our favorite punching bag. Well, a lot of people's (laughs) favorite punching bag. I don't care about other people. I care about us. Yes. (laughs) A kid. I care about other people. Anyway. All right. So when it comes to Star Citizen, the story really begins in October of 2012, which is when it first hit Kickstarter. Apparently, it had been in development since sometime in 2011, or at least that's according to the claims of the Kickstarter video. And the pitch on Kickstarter is that there was going to be a single-player Squadron 42 experience that was akin to Wing Commander, which is who Christopher Roberts is the developer, like the guy in charge of Star Citizen, and he made the Wing Commander games. That's where he got his big claim to fame in the game industry was doing Wing Commander. And then once you finish the campaign, mm-hmm. they would muster you out of the military and you would have access to this wide open universe and a giant multiplayer game it was all going to be done in the CryEngine 3. So the engine developed by the Crytek people. Um, and one of the things they bragged about was the fact that the game was going to be higher fidelity to any other game. And one of the examples in that video, again, was that their character models had 100,000 faces. And as a comparison, a normal AAA game like Call of Duty... Uh, your character model probably has like 10,000 faces. Sure. So 
it's a ridiculous amount of geometry to push through your hardware, which may or may not explain some of the performance issues that people have been experiencing <laughs> in Star Citizen. But that's which doesn't at all surprise me. Yeah. So this is what Kickstarter lists as the kind of original scope so to speak, of Star Citizen. So this is their original blurb. So it says, yep. real quick, Star Citizen is, and it lists some, some bullet points. It is a rich universe filled with epic space adventure, trading, and dogfighting in the first person. Sounds it great. Is, it offers single player, both offline and online, with drop-in, drop-out, co-op play. Awesome has a persistent universe that is hosted by Cloud Imperium Games, the people of making Star Citizen. Fantastic. There is moddable multiplayer, which will be hosted by you, the player of the game. Even better, I can make mods. Yep. There will be no subscriptions. Sweet. And there will be no pay to win. Where do I sign up? Well, originally you could sign up on Kickstarter. And their original funding goal was... $500,000. It seems a little low, but I could see people doing it for that. And then the total funding they got from Kickstarter was $2,134,374. That's awesome. Yeah. So they did, however, really, they did a really good job funding on Kickstarter. However, they also had additional funding on their own website through PayPal. Which, yes, as do. of the recording of this podcast, is $142,986,535. Yes, it is the largest crowdfunded game in history. Holy shit. So, with that lengthy amount of money, they actually got to a point where they stopped having stretch goals. Yes. So... For example, to give you an idea of budgets, Grand Theft Auto 4 had a $100 million budget. That's a lot of money. Red Dead Redemption also had around a $100 million budget. Both great games. Final Fantasy 7 had about a $145 million budget. But Widely lauded as one of the greatest games of all time. To be fair, $100 million of that was marketing, but you know. Of course. Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. Yeah. $200 million. A lot of that was marketing too. Yeah. Grand Theft Auto 5 had $265 million budget. Well worth it by all accounts. Yeah, it is one of the it's one of the best-selling games of 2016 and it was released in 2015. So, you know. Yeah, people wanted to buy it on console again. I mean, see see the thing with 2015 was released on Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3. Mm -hmm. Then the Xbox 1 and PlayStation 4 came out and people were like, "I still want to play this." The best part was they gave you the option to rebuy it and freely transfer your characters from Grand Theft Auto Online from Xbox 360 and PS3 to PS4 and Xbox One. Yep. That was the biggest impetus, and that's why it was the biggest seller of 2016. But yeah, so Grand Theft Auto 5 is probably not a great example to go by, but I don't, I don't know. Here's a good one. So a good comparison, I think, Star Wars The Old Republic. So a big MMO. Perfect with, comparison. With lots of voice acting cost $150 million. And that by all accounts, and I played, having played it myself, they spent their money extremely wisely. It is a very well put together game, fun to play, fun to mess around with with your friends. 
every penny that has been spent on that, I think, is well spent. Yeah. So they had a lot of stretch goals, and their stretch goals were combined between Kickstarter and the funding that is raised via their own website. Yeah. Um, and it is insane because they get to a point where I don't remember what the stopping point was. I think it was around 60 or so where they were just like, uh, maybe we should stop this. There was a point where the scope creep from these stretch goals had gotten so bad that they stopped doing new stretch goals. I mean, it, it, it literally is that bad. It is $65 million. They finally said, Oh God, we shrug. Like what the hell else are going to do? Like it's $64 billion. They had pets. Yeah. The, the initial, like the actual tracker on their real website for their next stretch goal is redacted. Like there is none. They don't have any more right now. Uh, and that's probably a really good thing, especially with the yeah. amount of criticism they've been getting for not having a game complete. But let's take a look at the actual stretch goals. And this can be, this is like a timeline, an actual timeline we can look at of scope creep for this game, which is mm-hmm. why this game is so interesting to look at. So with their Kickstarter campaign, they crossed the $2 million threshold. Yeah. They actually crossed more than that because they had a bunch of funding outside of Kickstarter by the time the Kickstarter finished. So this is October 25th of 2012. So their Kickstarter started on October 18th of 2012. Sure. And it finished a month later because at that point in time, Kickstarter campaigns were about a month long. So. We can look at November, around November 18th is when Kickstarter would end. So let's keep that in mind as we look at these. Makes sense. So at the $2 million plateau, they promised regular community updates. Not a huge deal. Uh, And then they were going to do a multiplayer dogfighting module. Mm -hmm. And the, the single player campaign that they talked about for Squadron 42 was going to be 30 missions long. Great. That's a pretty good ballpark to shoot for yeah absolutely Um, and so we'll talk about this first one because they do this periodically uh so at two and a half million dollars they they added a new ship to the game called the anvil gladiator uh so they randomly throw these new stretch goals in that are just new ships and they're not hugely important for what we're kind of talking about because that's it's literally just an art asset and like hooking up some physics to it it's not it shouldn't be a huge deal yeah it, it like those could be very easily added to the game later it's not a huge deal there's much much bigger things that we can talk about like so at three million dollars they added five new missions to the squadron 42 campaign that is scope creep you're literally adding five new missions to the game that is a significant amount of work that needs to be done can we also just for a second mention that with the additional flying ships they're kind of already shrugging as to what they should offer for yeah any sort of stretch like an additional flying ship with five hundred thousand extra dollars. Like, yeah. I don't know. What, what do you want? Like, what, what it, else do we do here? It also does not seem like it would cost five hundred thousand dollars to add a new ship to the game. But I was man. hoping that came through with my tone of voice, but apparently yes. I missed that. Well, to, just to, to make that extra, like, yeah, hammer that point oh, home. Yeah. So at the three hundred million dollar mark, they also said that they were going to basically create a persistent universe available for online play that would include 40 star systems that's a lot of work that is a huge amount of scope creep huge that, that is so that is the mmo component of star citizen 
is at the three $3 million mark, which they hit on November 8th. So during the Kickstarter campaign, they hit that. Um, Furthering, and they actually had 3.25 once again. More ships. Which, yeah, another, another, sh- another couple of ships. Like $250,000 should not be another freaking ship. Yeah. Now but, with 3.5. Yeah, at 3.5 million, they offer two new things that are that actually are interesting because again they are scope creep one of them is cosmetic not a huge deal it is cockpit decorations so this is the exact quote from the from the thing because it's kind of funny turn your stock cockpit into your home with personalized decorations raise your friends with bobbleheads photographs dinosaurs fuzzy dice nose art posters and many more cool options that seems like a pretty cool idea, but the, again, those are really kind of just, those are art assets. It's not a huge deal with scope creep. The biggest portion of this comes with the next blurb, shipboarding. Learn more about how Star Citizen will allow players to conduct boarding operations. That is once again, a huge amount of work. Yes. So basically that implies that in this game, you will be able to leave your ship and enter another ship. Yes in space yes that's insane yeah so that was november 14th again still during kickstarter so november 16th again still during kickstarter they hit the four million dollar mark so here's what Mm -hmm. they did at four million dollars they added 10 new systems to their persistent game so it's jumped from 40 to 50 they decided they would do a monthly webcast called wingman's hangar all mod tools, professional mod tools, will be provided to all players free of charge. Squadron 42 will jump from 35 missions to 45 missions. And that Star Citizen will launch with 50 star systems, which includes those 10 that we were talking about a minute ago, mm-hmm. and another another ship. So that... The four million dollar mark is a huge like that's so that's ten more planetary systems they have to design. Modding tools they're giving to all the players. Ten more missions for their single player campaign. That's huge. Like that is a huge update. It is insane. They they also clearly thought ahead for this too, because looking at this, you can see that at three point one, two, three, four, five through four point oh million worth for the star system. So if with each one hundred thousand dollars. They were like, okay, we'll add a star system. Well, this was towards the end of the Kickstarter campaign. So they were trying to get every $100,000 they could get between their two funding platforms. Like, was a really, really good thing. So yeah. half a million dollars later at four and a half million, you add another 10 star systems to the game. A entire new class of ships called cruisers. Yep. Which huge amount of work or can be potentially. Yeah. And then, interestingly, all of the Kickstarter goals get unlocked. So everyone who's backed this before a certain point will get all of the Kickstarter bonuses, regardless of where they funded it from. And then here's where more of the scope creep comes in. They're going to extend hardcore flight simulator controller support. So flight chairs, multiple monitors, track IR, which if you don't know what track IR is, a lot of people in Elite Dangerous use it, and it's like a head-mounted thing that you wear. Yep. And as you turn your head and move your head around, it will actually simulate the same movement it would do with a VR headset. where you can, So you can look around, and it'll shift your field of view on the screen. 
multifunction displays and more of that kind of stuff will be available on launch. Four additional ships, <laughs> ship classes. Not like, ships, ship classes, yeah. which is just nuts because they've already released an, a secondary ship class before. Yeah. Four of four more. Yeah. Two additional types of bases, like hit, the one that of Vandal Trading Post, which I don't know what the hell that is. It's probably something to do with the game's lore. Sure. Uh, and then hidden smuggler asteroids, which is kind of a cool idea, just like little asteroid bases. Sure. Uh, Makes sense. And then they're going to add a new alien race to the game. Sure. So, again, one of the last few things. So, my understanding is they hit $6 million in the Kickstarter campaign between their two platforms. So, we're still touching the stuff they did during Kickstarter. Sure. So, at the $5 million option, you start getting enhanced boarding options. So, that boarding system they talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. Now, they have melee combat, heavy weapons, zero gravity simulation suit HUD options, and EVA, so extra vehicular activity, so leaving your spaceship, EVA combat. So you can leave your spaceship in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Insane. Yeah, so increased ship customization, not a huge deal. That's just a little more artwork or whatever, but that can add up. This is a huge scope creep in my opinion. Tablet companion application to check your inventory, commission, or find missions, and get the galactic news feed. So let's put that into perspective for the for the audience. It doesn't seem like much when you think about a tablet companion app. It doesn't seem like it should be that huge a deal. A tablet app, that's really not huge a deal, right? But think about that tying into everything regarding Star Citizen. You're checking your inventory, which means you actually literally have to pull your inventory, check it, checking in on what's going on with your inventory, as well as commission and find missions and get the Galactic News Feed. That is a, a significant amount of work. Mm-hmm. It is not small. Yeah. They'll also do a monthly town hall Q&A with Chris Roberts, which they do. Uh, I think it's called 10 for the captain or something like that. Then here here comes some more scope creep. Squadron uh -oh. 42 will feature celebrity voice acting, including at least one favorite from Wing Commander and 50 total missions. So another five missions for Squadron 42 single player campaign. Plus paying the voice actors. And there are a ton of massive named voice actors on this game, which is pretty crazy. Then add some more star systems because now there are 70. And then another base type to land on, which is the air alien derelict. So run alien space stations that have been abandoned. Yeah. Um, at five and a half million, we get professional motion capture for the Squadron 42 cutscenes, a special ship skin uh that all backers who pledged before the 5.5 million goal will get uh and then a new class so it's just the the motion capture professional motion capture for five and a half million dollars five hundred thousand dollars for professional motion capture essentially is what they're that's the budget yeah. to go back to the voice acting for just a moment they have gary oldman they have mark hamill yeah the only one I see listed currently is Gary Oldman from First Star Citizen. Literally, he's Admiral Ernst Bishop. Gary freaking Oldman. So here's the list of people that have already been agreed. Said they're going to be a part. Has has already been kind of announced that they are going to be in Squadron Forty Two. Sure. Um, Gary Oldman, Mark Hamill, Mark Strong, Craig Fairbrass, Liam Cunningham, Ben Mendelson, Ian Duncan, Jack Hudson. John Reese Davies, Andy Circus, Harry Treadaway, Gillian Anderson, yes, from X Files, Gillian Anderson, 
Sophie Wu, Sandy Gardiner, which is very controversial because that's Chris Roberts' wife, I believe. Um, Rona Mitra, Richard Blake, and Gemma Wellen. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff. Right now, Squadron 42 is supposed to come out in uh, 2017, allegedly. The first part of it is supposed to come out in 2017. Let's take a minute and ask, does anybody believe that? Anybody? Bueller? I don't know. Bueller? I haven't seen Mark Hamill post something on Twitter about it, so I don't know. I, I can't imagine. Yeah. So getting back to their thing. So the last one they hit during Kickstarter was that $6 million where they promised that Star Citizen will launch with 100 star systems. So let's go back. The very first one said that it will, at 3 million, said it would launch with 40. So at 6 million, it's going to now have 100 star systems. Squadron 42 will feature a full orchestral score. Yeah. Orchestral score and 100 star systems. Like that is pretty massive. So from here, they were at least a little intelligent and they stepped back and they took a look at what they should be doing for more of these things. Like that's that was their initial burst of scope creep from Kickstarter. And that, that is a hard, hard thing to do. It is. It is. So they didn't do another stretch goal until $9 million. So there's a huge gap between stretch goals. And the stretch $9 million stretch goal is a Robert Space Industries Class 2 space suit. So just like a little nod to the company. Yeah, that's making it. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but then the first really huge one after that is at $10 million. And if this isn't a sign of scope creep, I'm not sure how you can better show scope creep. At $10 million, Cloud Imperium Games will build their own motion capture studio to improve the quality of Star Citizen and Squadron 42's cutscenes. So instead of contracting the work out to a professional motion capture studio, they're going to build their own studio from the ground up and do their own motion capture. Yeah, which... Honestly, it would have been infinitely cheaper to license out a studio. Not only that, $1 million later, they. what bothers me about this statement is what it implies. Move wingman out of the basement. Move CIG Austin to a larger facility that will support expanded development. More room for employees means more man hours spent developing the game. First, you're not poor anymore. You've made a lot of money on this game without actually doing a damn thing. Implying that you're still in a basement is just a slap in the face to your backers. Yeah, That's how I feel anyway. To talk about some of the animosity that people have had towards this game. One of the things that they've done for fundraising on this game is literally sell concept art for ships. Like... You are not actually purchasing a ship for the game. That is actually an option. You can go spend a ridiculous amount of money on ships to start this game with whenever it finally finishes. <laughs> but not even that, just concept art for a ship. Like you get a picture in the mail of the ship and you spend a couple hundred dollars on it. Like it is insane. Some of the, the stuff you can buy for it. And I mean, more power to them. They got a lot of money. Hopefully they can deliver on this because that is that is something that I will continue to say about this game. As much as we criticize it, as much as other people criticize it, 
I would love to see this game get finished and see this game be anywhere close to what they are promising people because it would be a very great game and I would happily play it. But until I see the game in its completed form, we're going to continue to sit in judgment. Yeah, like it is, there's going to be criticism until they put their money where their mouth is, so to speak, and actually show a real working game because I have yet to really see other than like little demos of their modules, which we will talk about in a little bit. So for $12 million, and so this is now July of 2013. We can't possibly go through this whole list. We're, we're not going to get through it. We'll, we'll skip some of the stuff. We'll, we'll kind of hit some of the bigger points because we're still only at $12 million out of 65, out of 65 million. million. So at $12 million, they build a professional sound studio and move Star Citizen sound production from a home office to a high-tech facility that gives us access to cutting-edge sound effects and Hollywood voice talent. Building a real recording studio costs a shitload of money. Like a sh- absolute shitload of money. It is a ton. So you would be so much better served with your time to just rent a good studio and do it or like take a room in an office building and make it into a place where you can just make sound effects and not annoy your fellow coworkers. I don't know. It's it's so kind of annoying. So we're, we're going to kind of skip through these. There's, there's going to be, we're, we're going to try and go through and just kind of pick out some of the, the better ones that are like a really good example of like good examples of scope creep 24 million dollars in they have a public transport system you need to get from one place to the other but don't have a starship we're building a galactic transportation system you can travel via transport from system to system and star citizen and even ship items like a ship you need to move to another hangar with this stretch goal we'll expand the system starliners long-range transports charter ships and flyable shuttles that is a huge amount of scope creep yeah but that's, I mean, that's pretty easy to just teleport people around. <laughs> I guess, but the implication yeah. I get is that with the flyable shuttles, you'll actually be flying them around. Yeah. I think the 22 million one is a really good example of scope creep. Facial capture system. We've researched a technology that uses a series of cameras to capture real heads and import them into the game. This will let the team more easily create a variety of realistic characters. In addition, the technology is mobile enough to allow us to take it on the road and capture select fans during special events. Holy shit. That is scope creep. Yes. That is also, we have so much money, we don't know what to do with it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. I, I would really love to know if they've actually used that at all. I, I don't know if they have, and I would love to see it in action if they've actually done it but i don't think that's something they've done yet uh, um, yeah 25 million is a, a great again example of scope creep uh we will use additional funding to build a wider alpha test than we had originally intended for the first phase of star citizens launch <sighs> boom more scope creep the initial plan was the first launch servers in north america then expand to areas such as europe and australia to decrease latency in these areas so it sounds like they're just going to launch, you know, simultaneous launch of all of them. Oh, uh, at 29 million enhanced mission designed for Squadron 42. The team at Foundry 42 has big plans for Squadron 42, and we're going to provide extra funding to make it a true spiritual successor to Wing Commander. Squadron 42 can go above and beyond anything you've seen before, from opening with an epic battle instead of a training patrol to missions that seamlessly combine boarding and space combat. We aim to put you right into the action. Additional funding will let this team realize this with enhanced mission design and more resources and animations to enhance fidelity. 
that is a god awful amount of scope creep. Yeah, and for a little while, a lot of them are just different, like adding new systems to the game. Like they will just like literally, for at thirty eight million dollars, they'll add this new system called the Kano system, and it's like just a little description of the system that's in there. Mm -hmm. um, here we go. So forty one million, I think, is the next big scope creep thing that I see. Procedural generation R and D team. Holy this, shit. This stretch gold will allocate funding for Cloud Imperium to develop procedural generation technology for future iterations of Star Citizen. Advanced procedural generation will be necessary for creating entire planets worth of exploration and development content. A special strike team of procedural generation oriented developers will be assembled to make this technology a reality. Jesus Christ. So that alone, like that sounds a lot like No Man's Sky, but for yep. Star Citizen, but mm -hmm. hopefully not. So. Oh, stellar cartography. This seems like a good one at forty-four million dollars. Yeah, no, welcome. No, I'm laughing at one of the forty-two million dollars. So forty-two million dollars just looks like a bunch of just boring stuff. Sure. Did you see the very last thing under forty-two million dollars? Oh, for fuck's sake! You you get a towel. Everyone who yeah. backs before they hit forty-two million dollars will also receive a towel for their hanger. So it's a virtual towel. Don't yeah. explore the galaxy without it. So a very blatant Douglas Adams joke there, which, you know, which, that's kind of funny. I can get I'll behind that. that. That's fine. Yeah. But $44 million is stellar cartography. Walk amongst the distant horizons you've charted in Star Citizen's dedicated map room featuring a 3D holographic representation of the known universe, which at this point is pretty freaking large. Your map room will start with a basic guide to the United Empire of Earth and will expand into something as unique as unique to you as you explore uncharted worlds and discover new secrets just based on that explanation alone that is going to be hugely complex to design and build yeah. 47 million dollars you have the ability to tune the engine of your spacecraft to make it perform better there's also the updated scanning software at 46 mil yeah so 50 million has a really really good example of scope creep mm -hmm. they're adding alien languages to the game and they are going to work with real-world linguists to create distinctive and realistic alien languages for Star Citizen's three biggest alien races, the Vandal, the Cyan, and the Banu. No universal translators, no garbled animal noises. Star Citizen's aliens will be speaking their own authentic languages. Yeah. I don't know what to say to that. That's just, yeah. come on. So to go with your holographic representation of the known universe at 51 million they did a web-based known universe map so they're going to have a map that is going to you know be clickable and usable online to look at the known universe in star citizen that would be easier than doing a 3d representation of it and having it populate as you go having just here's a map of the known universe you can interact with it yeah. that could be easier to do but yeah. it's still enough to say what the shit guys at 54 million, more detailed AI activities. Mm -hmm. We will add 10 distinct types of AI character roles on planet-side environments. At 54 million, this includes bartender, doctor, entertainer, nurse, sanitation worker, security guard, shopper, tourist, vagrant, and vandal. Future AI roles will be added with future stretch goals. Each additional class of character will be fully expressive and have a role to play in Star Citizen's planet-side interactions and uh, the game's greater economy. So that is a huge deal. Like, that's a lot of AI development that needs to go in. Absolutely. 
So most of these are ships. Like after that, um, I actually uh, until sixty four million, where uh, sixty four and sixty five million are the last two big scope creep stretch goals. Uh, sixty four million is adding pets. Yeah, you know, having pets on your ships. So I guess I mean, and then sixty five million was more modules and customization on your ships, which always always will result in you know more development time because you have to make yeah, absolutely more modular and you yep. have to like more coding and more art i'm sure this game has been in development for a while now yep since 2012 yep i cannot imagine they're going to finish it this year not even squadron 42 the single player portion of it i can't imagine that so like like we've said it is a very textbook example of scope creep and not only has it been in development since 2012, but there are f- currently four different studios working on the game around the world and multiple different companies working on it. They've never announced an official release date. There's never been an official release date advertised. And you remember how you were talking about Duke Nukem switching engines? Yep. So remember how we said it was being developed on CryEngine 3? Yep. Well, it was. Like, starting in 2011, CryEngine 3. Makes sense. And at some point, when CryEngine 4 got released, they updated the game to work in CryEngine 4. Perfect. And then randomly in December of last year, they switched to using the Amazon Lumberyard engine, which is a custom version of CryEngine 3 that has been in development with Amazon to, to better take use of their platforms and their some of their features that they have to offer like their Amazon cloud service and stuff like that. But four years in the game's development, they suddenly switch engines again, which is never a good sign. No, not at all. Um, I mean, can this be the next Duke Nukem forever? Amusingly, it won Wired's Vaporware award for 2016. Delightful. Delightful. Yeah. But there are some things that, Robert Space Industries and Cloud Imperium Games have to show for this. Like, this is the results of their labor so far. What they have is the first thing that they released was called the hangar module, where you could literally run around in your giant hangar bay and look at all of the ships that you own. That was it. Like, if if a ship had been added to the game and you owned it and had access to it, you could run around this hangar and look at it. Cool. I guess. Yeah. It, It was the that was in August of 2013 is when they added that, that went out to the public. There was also Arena Commander, which allowed players to playtest the ship combat, racing portions of the game against other players and AI opponents. And if the ships they own have been added to the game and have been given the ability to fly. Yes, because there were and apparently still are ships that have been added to the game but can't fly yet. Like they don't have any flight physics they're just a model in the game. So you can see it in your hangar, but you can't fly it in Arena Commander. Jesus and Arena Christ. Commander was released in June of 2014. Almost three years ago. Yes. So the next module, because what they're doing is they're basically making the game in stages, which they refer to as modules. And then the idea is that they'll p- plug all the modules together and have a complete game later, which may or may not work very well for them, but we'll see. Okay, um, but Star Marine is what became of all of that boarding stuff, and it is a first-person shooter that currently has two modes of play. 
Uh, the first one is called Elimination, and it is basically free for all deathmatch, and it has like ten minute rounds or something. And at the end of ten minute rounds, you uh, you know you basically have uh, your winner. And then there's something called The Last Stand, which is a domination style game where you control points on a map and your team gets points and whoever has the most points at the end of the round wins. Uh, and that that got released in December of 2016. So that's the most recent addition to the game. There is also something that a lot of people have seen that's called Area 18, which is like a space station that was a test for planet-side interactions and is quote, an ultra-detailed cityscape for you and your friends to explore, go shopping, or just see the sights. And that's what you see. If you look at footage of Star Citizen, a lot of what you'll see is people running around to Area 18 and just looking at the city and being like, oh my god, this is so amazing, and look, there are other players, and it's it's a thing. Yeah. Um, and then it's they, a bullshit thing, but it's still a thing. Yeah, and then they released a, a small-scale test of their persistent universe that is designed to... Uh, combine all of these modules together allow you to go back and forth between them uh, as seamlessly as possible with no loading times and it's a, a very small version of the 100 systems or whatever the crap they're up sure to sure now thanks to scope creep and then one last note just to kind of throw in is that i noticed on their website that they have a tab called subscriptions and it, go seems, on. To work, it seems to work a lot like patreon like you can pay them a monthly subscription and get access to more behind the scenes and in-game stuff which kind of makes me think back to their kickstarter campaign which said that they were not going to have subscriptions yeah no paid subscriptions and no pay to win and yeah yeah and I mean, and it's not necessarily paying to win but it is like it's definitely a subscription it literally says in the blurb no subscriptions. What the shit? I'm sure they, you know, asked all of their backers if how what they thought of it, and you know, their backers were like, "Oh, that's fucking awesome! Hell yeah, we want we want to help this game more because that's the thing about this game is it the people who are fans of this game are super ridiculously passionate about it. They are fiercely loyal for some inexplicably insane reason. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, please don't let me talk about this anymore. Please yes. don't force me to no, do this. No, no more Star Citizen. Thank God. I hate this game. What about... So, when you define scope creep, there's a lot of stuff that crops up that just seems to keep coming up. Stuff that is now kind of the new normal in games. Yeah. Like, quick time events. They weren't originally a huge thing in games, and now they're somehow just everywhere. In fact, we're making entire games out of them. Heavy Rain. This is an entire game based on the quick time event. There's stealth levels for most games that don't uh, sh kind of shouldn't include them. Yeah. So one of the things that I think is a symptom of scope creep in a weird way is like we've all experienced this in a game where you're playing a game and just all of a sudden like there's a random stealth level and it's the only stealth level in the game. And it's just like, why is this here? Like this is, doesn't belong here. Yeah, it's not like it's a mechanic that keeps coming up in the game. It's just there's a random stealth level and they work it into the story in some capacity. But at the same time, it's just like, was is this necessary? Or is this like, oh, our our publisher wants a stealth level because everyone loves stealth levels. Nobody really loves stealth levels. 
but and a lot of it seems like like the little mini games you get thrown in there are stealth a little bit of scope creep um some of them though like i would i imagine like because i think about rockstar and like they have the arcade games that you can play through through grand theft auto games yep and i actually wagered that a lot of those arcade games are just made by the team as like we need a break catharsis yeah yeah like I, I'm burned out on working on this game because we've been working on it for three years. I need a break. And they're like, here you go. You get arcade game number four. Go crazy. Yeah. And uh, and then like the next team gets to their breaking point and the, you know, the producer, like the guy in, in-house that's that's doing the production stuff goes like, here, you guys get game number five, go. And then like they just cycle like that and it's just used to maintain sanity. Um, Makes sense. But yeah, and so a lot of things like that, like weird puzzles that you find in games, like a lot of those seem like they could be a symptom of scope creep, depending on how out of place they feel when you're playing the game. So, meh, it's it is it is curious to think about, and it is definitely something I consider when you know I'm playing a game, and all of a sudden I run into something really weird, and it's like, was that? Did that belong here or was that just like someone's you know good idea or was that like a producer stepping in and you know you know a publisher stepping in and stepping on people's toes and forcing them to do something because it's what what's expected of that game genre or whatever like the stealth levels and quick time events and stuff like that but we get to a point where there are people that are coming up with like kind of creative ideas of how to combat scope creep and we have a couple here that we at least want to talk about of like a couple that, that do it right. And a couple that do it wrong. So one of the, to kind of explain this idea is uh, when you're developing a game, one of the first things you do to the game is you develop what is called a minimum viable product, which is like, you take all of the, like the most core aspects of the game and you get the most bare bones version that shows off how fun this, this can be. And that's what you develop. You you just get that going and out the door. And that's your minimum viable product. And that's one of the things that you show to investors to get a publisher, basically. So, so let's think of it this way. A minimum viable product can be likened in terms of bicycles, yeah. scooters, and motorcycles. The bicycle is your minimum viable product. It has two wheels. You can pedal it. It moves. No problem. You've got it. The scooter is something that you've got halfway down. It's got a motor on it. You can move it. You don't need to pedal with your legs anymore. It's pretty cool. Then you got a Harley Davidson motorcycle. Top of the line. This is what you want. What you what you are going for immediately. Yeah. What we're going for here is the bicycle. Yeah. One of the greatest, most successful examples of this, I think, is got to be Minecraft. Absolutely. It started with a minimum viable product. It it's alpha release. And it's, it said, hey, we've got this game. If you want to buy in from the ground level, you can help support this game. We're going to keep adding to it over time, and we're going to do some really neat stuff. Uh, but you're welcome to come along for the ride. And people bought into it, and now it's sold a bajillion copies, and it does some pretty cool stuff. But yeah, it, over time, has built up so much stuff. And that's not even going into the mods. Just regular vanilla Minecraft has so much stuff built into it now and just started at such a humble thing and has now be, you know blown up to this huge thing and it's a it's probably the the best example of this rev, what I've, I've kind of jokingly dubbed reverse scope creep which is like starting with a minimum viable product 
getting the game into players' hands and then making it better over time. Continuous integration is what yeah. it's generally called. Yeah. But the idea is you're, you're just iterating over and over and over again and adding the new content as you come into it. And you had had an example you thought of for yeah. this too. It's, it's actually one of the few that I backed on Kickstarter before I had my moratorium on it. And it's one called Project Zomboid. If you're not familiar with that, your character is literally thrown into a town. You're going to die. It's just a matter of how long can you survive. You are thrown in the middle of a town for the zombie apocalypse. There are a couple of towns in, in Kentucky. And you are literally just trying to survive as long as you possibly can. Now, originally, this was done just by, hey, you can find weapons. You can find stuff. You can maybe build stuff. You can find the proper tools. They're continually developing it. And every week or two, they give you an update of what's going on with Project Zomboid. It is very much like Shroud of the Avatar. They're very communicative. They're extremely cool with uh, you coming up and saying, hey, this is a cool feature I'd like to see added. Could you think about it? And they're like, yeah, we'll think about it. We're going to bring it up at the next step meeting. That's pretty cool. They're yeah. very, like I suggested a feature and they were like, yeah, we'll bring it up. Awesome. Nice. Like they'll actually listen to their fan base. Yeah. Really sweet. Definitely the opposite of it because they came out with a minimum viable product you against a horde of zombies. That's it. Yeah. They continued adding to it since. And I uh, don't believe it's yet out of early access because it is still very much early access game. It is still very rough around the edges, but it's still a very great game. It's not out of early access yet. Uh, they don't have a specific release date, but they're also adding a bunch to it before they finally do that. Very much like Shard of the Avatar. Another in that same kind of genre that might have actually been an inspiration for Project Zomboid is a, a kind of infamous game called DayZ. <laughs> and it started as a mod for Arma 2. And it was actually done by one of the Arma 2 developers in his spare time. And he was just like, oh, this would be cool. Let's make a zombie survival game out of this. And eventually he's added more and more and more stuff. And the alpha did a ridiculous ridiculous amount of downloads of the uh the the mod for daisy and then it actually got so popular that the company that makes arma spun off a its own separate games using the arma 3 engine there's actually an official daisy game and i believe it's still in early access but they've been building it up over time and i think you can now even build settlements and stuff in it and like you couldn't at the beginning it was just a scavenging game basically but they added more stuff to scavenge and i think you can actually fix vehicles and drive them around and all kinds of crazy stuff but it's been yeah. it's been interesting to see the development that's gone into it and how it's built up over time um I would it is definitely still in early access yeah i would actually love to go take a look at it and see uh how much it's changed since the last time i looked at it probably a couple yeah. of years ago now I like the idea of it, but I don't like it for $35. And yeah, no. most of the reviews are mostly negative. Yeah, well, that's because people hate Russians. And, like, Russians really love the game, and they love <laughs> to kill other players, not the zombies. So, uh, <laughs> like, it's kind of... That's one of the things that was really notorious about the game is, like, do not play on a server if it's located in Russia because you will get killed by other players usually really, really fast. yeah. Um, Another success story to talk about, which is one that we talk about a lot, so we can kind of kind of gloss over this a little bit because you guys should be familiar with this at this point, is is Elite Dangerous. <laughs> we, we just talked about it at the top of the show. So they they 
were a Kickstarter game. They they launched. They got their stuff up and running. They got their MVP out the door. Um, and then since then, they've added all kinds of crazy stuff. Landing on planets, driving around on planets, uh, launching fighters from larger capital ships. Uh, they did a complete overhaul of the mission system this year. They added engineers to further customize already super customizable ships. They have passenger missions now. The multi-crew stuff is about to go into beta. The character design stuff is about to go into beta and all kinds of other crap. Like they've they've been doing it really, really well where they just have taken something and like they have these ideas. They're going to keep building on them and they just t- over time just keep adding to them. And personally, when they announced whatever the season passes for 3.0, uh, I I'm going to buy it because I've enjoyed 2.0 so much, like that whole span so far, and they're only halfway done with 2.0. So yeah, I can't wait to see what they they do with the 3.0 stuff. I I can't either. I I I've been deeply enthralled with this game since you're like, hey, try this, and I was like, okay, and I kind of regret that, but at the same time, I love it. <laughs> glad glad to corrupt you, I guess. So now look, let's talk about a couple of controversial ones one of the people that did this and did not handle it very well is arc survival evolved which actually so it's still in early access and they still have not hit their 1.0 version so they they still have features that they're looking to add to the game that are they consider like base features of the game yeah and they've already released paid dlc for the game which is bullshit. Yeah, we we talked about this on a previous episode at some point in time, just as yep. part of like news. But just seems wrong. Like you haven't finished your initial game, you haven't fulfilled your promise to the people who have given you money to buy into early access. Like, what the crap are you doing? Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like, I I definitely haven't bought into it, and I have pretty much no desire to buy into it and yeah we'll, we'll see if they ever get out of early access hopefully maybe at some point but if they you know get by selling dlc while they're in early access i mean what incentive do they have to get out of early access none yeah and then lastly i think there's just one more game that we should talk about because i think yeah. it's a game that has gotten literally bitten in the ass by not doing this model well Mm-hmm. And that is Pokemon Go. Couldn't agree more. So Pokemon Go is a great example. And everyone who picked the game up, played it for two or three weeks, got bored and stopped, knows exactly what this phenomenon is because they launched a minimum viable product and then did not follow through with updating it. They just did little tiny tweaks and balance changes. And in the nine months or so that this game has been out, there have not really been significant upgrades to gameplay. And they sure haven't. It's actually funny because Niantic actually just made a big deal about this recently and said that they are going to work on these changes. Finally. Too little too late, pal. Yeah. But they have made hundreds of millions of dollars off of this game with almost no significant changes to it. So just kind of as a very, very quick run through, like this is what has changed in the game in nine months. They did slight tweaks to gyms so that when you're training a gym that your team controls, 
it lowers the CP and hit point values of the Pokemon defending the gym so that it's easier for you to train the gyms that are controlled by your team. Mm -hmm. When you train the gyms controlled by your own team, you get to use a full team of Pokemon, so a full six Pokemon instead of just one, which is the way it originally released. They balanced how much reputation you build or lose from a gym when you fight it. They added buddy Pokemon to the game. So you can pick a Pokemon that will walk around with you while you're out walking. And mm -hmm. after a certain amount, certain amount of distance, which is based on the Pokemon, either one, two, or three kilometers, you get one candy from the Pokemon for every amount of that distance you walk. So if it's one kilometer, every kilometer you walk, you get one candy for that Pokemon. Gee, thanks. That is actually really good. If you catch a Pokemon that lives that exists in an area you don't normally see so like you go visit a friend in another state or something and mm -hmm. come back and you can't find that pokemon anymore at least you have a method of getting candy now and you can actually evolve that pokemon instead of never being able to evolve it but again yeah so they added support for the pokemon go plus which is a little thing that lets you push a button on it to spin gyms and attempt mm -hmm. to catch pokemon they added apple watch support they made a little apple watch app that does some of the functionality of the Pokemon Go Plus, but not really. Mm -hmm. They added Ditto, a Pokemon that copies other Pokemon. They added some of the Gen 2 Pokemon as babies that you can hatch from eggs, but that's it. And then they added sponsored Pokestops. So Starbucks has Pokestops, Sprint stores have Pokestops, and I think there's a bank in the US that's about to get them. But Probably. Something like that, but... That's it. Like those are the major changes that have happened to the game in the nine months that it's been out. And as you can see, that's not major system changes. That's not, you still can't fight your friends. You still can't trade Pokemon. Mm -hmm. Like there's, there's nothing significantly new to the game. So people are getting bored with it and leaving and it sucks. Like it's interesting in a way to watch the, youtube guys that are like huge huge channels that have hundreds of millions of, or not hundreds of millions hundreds of thousands of subscribers that literally do daily videos on pokemon go and they're like i i i don't have anything else to talk about like i don't know what to do anymore yeah like i've done everything i've told you all of the tips that i know now like i i mm -hmm. can't i'm just hanging out with my friends and we play pokemon it's like let me they're they're now starting to branch out into other games to get more subscribers which is kind of funny but yeah it's it's a problem it's and a huge problem people will come back and check it out because it's going to happen like if, if they significantly change the game enough people who were curious initially will probably come back and at least give it another shot at some point but for a lot of people it is too little too late i know it is for me yeah something that you hate which is early access <laughs> Uh, I think that this method of development is why early access exists. Absolutely. Like, it was an, a way to give smaller companies and smaller devs the ability to put out a minimum viable product, generate income for the game, while being able to build it up to a full real game like other com like you know a full publisher would put out, put out. And don't get me wrong, some of them do work out, some of them work out wonderfully. Like, I don't regret purchasing Project Zomboid. I don't like early access. I don't think it's a very viable way to do things. That's my opinion. Oh, I, I agree. Like, there, most of the time, it seems like it's 
quasi getting abused. Um, mm -hmm. And there are definitely games that per should probably no longer be in early access. They just hang out there for a really long time, like Arc. Arc. Um, <laughs> but meh. But there's a lot of changes going on at Steam right now, so we might actually see a little bit of an overhaul to early access because they're they're overhauling a bunch of other stuff right now. So who knows? Um, Hopefully, at least there are developers getting creative about not letting scope creep completely kill off their game or pushing it out like a ridiculous amount and fans are much more willing to jump on board with a minimum viable game and help the developer and ride along with the developer as they build it up over time no man's sky is probably another example like pokemon go of a game that basically did a really shitty minimum viable product and people were merciless like oh absolutely yeah absolutely merciless with no yeah. man's guy about the lack of depth to their game that because they were led to believe one thing and then they were mm -hmm. handed something else and they're slowly building up to that thing that they originally promised but it's probably way too little too way late. too little too late yeah i don't know i think i'm all tapped out on scope creep how do you how do you feel about scope creep paul um to be quite honest with you i'm about ready to pass out on my feet I, I can see. <laughs> Please don't face plant into your monitor or keyboard I, or microphone. I have no intention of doing so. All right, folks. We love you. Do you like us? That's cool. If you want to get in contact with us, just go to podcast at loadedcardgaming.com. That is our email. You can find me at Paul Clewell on Twitter. You can find Dan. He usually runs our Loaded Card account at Loaded Cart on Twitter. You want to find us in any of those social media, just go to the website, loadedcardgaming.com. And if you love us, which I hope you do, because we love you, Consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you're listening to us on. We're not on SoundCloud, sorry. <laughs> I was about to say, uh, good luck, good luck leaving us a review on SoundCloud. If you, if you manage to give us a review on SoundCloud, that's impressive. I will give you a special shout out <laughs> on the podcast. Seriously, just give us take a look at Stitcher or Stitcher or iTunes. We'd appreciate any review you leave there. It helps us go bumping up in the charts. And if you get a chance. Check out our Patreon. We like we like to we like to turn this into a full time business, a good thing to do for us, day in day out, talking to you, talking to each other, making sure everybody's good on the games. So check out patreoncom gaming. And thank you to Phil Hawkins, our most recent Patreon subscriber. We so, appreciate it, buddy. Thank you, Phil. Thanks a lot. Anything else? No, I I think we're good. Let's uh, do this again soon. Perfect. All right, folks, here's some smooth jazz to play you out. Okay. You, you ready to resume? Paul. genitals okay there you go there's there's some keep my thumbs up it's not my fault you weren't looking you gave your thumbs up when you said okay it gets my vote <laughs> yeah but you asked doesn't i gave thumbs up i mean yes. you, that's you... that's a confirmation <laughs> so there you go nice uh patreon backers you're getting some bonus content also please enjoy the stinger bonus content